Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm Charlie McCarran, your composer host in Minneapolis, and this show is my way of sharing composing and songwriting advice from all sorts of creative people. This is the 90th episode of Composer Quest and the penultimate episode of Season 2. You can find all other 89 episodes at ComposerQuest.com or on iTunes or Stitcher. Today's episode features composer Alex Cook, who majored in three things, none of which were music. He's an interesting guy, and we talk about everything from writing in odd time signatures to the most common Red Hot Chili Peppers chord progression. Alex shares a bunch of tidbits of composing wisdom, like this one. Sometimes just a 5 or 10% sacrifice in what you want from the music can give you a 90 or 95% increase in the viability of that music being played. Let's get right into my talk with Alex Cook. Thanks for being here on Composer Quest. Oh, thanks for having me. Sure. I was looking at your resume Mm -hmm. and saw that you are a triple major. Yes. Math, (laughs) psychology, and theater. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you pull that off? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't sleep much. Um, (laughs) No, I was always one of those people who just had a lot of uh, multiple interests. And music was just a part of your hobby at that time? or Music was always kind of um, my first love, you know, my greatest passion. Um, But I didn't come to classical music till pretty late, till I was about 21 or so. You know, I was already well into my undergraduate career, and it took me a little while to figure out how to catch up to the rest of the pack. Sure, sure. I was listening to a bunch of your pieces, but I was kind of curious if you have a favorite piece of yours. I think um, a cello piano piece I just wrote and just had played called Insistence is my favorite. was okay with trying that? Yeah, she was okay with it. Um, It made making her part kind of a nightmare because I had to write the pitches as she would finger them normally if the tuning was, but I couldn't just transpose everything up a half step because only two of the strings on the cello were actually transposed, so I had to write above every note what string to... I mean, there was like 800 notes, and I had to specify the string for every single one of them, and transpose it accordingly or not (laughs) so you're a guitarist yourself right Mm -hmm. i'm assuming that's where your idea came from of tuning down the strings absolutely yeah because i mean i'm so um i'm a big rock kind of funk guitarist and i play a lot by ear so for me it's second nature just to tune strings however i want them you know and <laughs> maybe i should have thought that it's not quite second nature for a cello before i did that but <laughs> yeah yeah another cello and piano piece of yours 
that I really liked is Onward. Oh, thank you. I especially liked the sounds you got on the cello. And it kind of reminded me, actually, of almost like a rock guitar when the cello's just repeating the same note. The other part that I liked was towards the end when you have a real high up cello part mm-hmm. and it's legato. Mm-hmm. The, the sound on that is just way different than any other cello sound, I feel like. I figured, you know, it'd be kind of fun to hold back on legato for four minutes and then all of a sudden just let it flow. Yeah. How are you thinking about that piece rhythmically? Since I'm kind of pitch-oriented, normally rhythm for me is just however it suits fitting in the pitches I want, you know. But in that piece, I actually put rhythm kind of more at the forefront. What I was trying to do is take kind of that Stravinskyan way of taking, you know, a phrase or something that's almost square, but just adding an extra beat or an extra little clip to it so it just becomes asymmetrical and a little off-kilter. So, I mean, it's a 9-16 for most of it, you know, but it's 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 3. So it feels very square until uh, that last beat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to figure out the time signature on that one. <laughs> I, I'm kind of mean in that one. <laughs> <laughs> Another piece that I liked was Ripple Movement 3 for mm-hmm. piano. That one's really cool how you can... It seems like you're changing keys very often, or maybe not even changing keys, but just mm-hmm. having little allusions to other keys. I like to... I don't know. No, you're absolutely right. I, I like to do that quite a bit. That third movement, I actually wanted it to be disorienting to the listener. Um, So I have a lot of really overlapping lines and phrases of uneven lengths that just kind of keep interweaving with each other. That piece also feels like it's constantly in motion. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's like what you're saying with those lines that are uneven lengths, were you saying? Mm-hmm. I'm glad you say that because in um, my temple marking at the beginning, I say uh, perpetually moving because I want it to feel like it's not ending. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yeah. It worked. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I noticed that you or also a composition teacher and mentor, mm-hmm. kind of, for young kids who are getting into composing. Mm-hmm. What's that program like? I have a friend, Max Muir. He, um, he 
does um, traveling workshops. Um, it's called Music on the Verge, and he is basically in residence with the high school for a week. And we take some sort of theme, like one of the workshops I worked on was um, Harry Potter books. Cool. <laughs> yeah, you could expect most, you know, high school age kids to have a familiarity with that. So we work together to help them develop a short piece in response to their favorite character or their favorite storyline. So what are some of the best character pieces that you got? One did one on Professor Snape, I think. It was a string quartet, and it was actually incredibly impressive. He took not just traditional writing, but used a bunch of extended techniques and kind of created this really eerie soundscape. It just made my head snap around. to hear that coming out of you know somebody who'd never written before cool what kind of advice do you give to composers the most salient thing i've taken from my teacher in the last two years is what i try to pass on to them and that is first of all you have to know the instruments inside and out you know it's not just enough to know the range of the you know the clarinet but you have to understand how a player plays that instrument because I think the the thing I've realized is that, you know, 90% of the fight with composing is writing music that's idiomatic to the instrument. If a player has to fight their own instrument to play your music, I mean, one, it makes it more difficult for them and less likely that you'll get the result you want, and two, it's just not enjoyable for them. And we want to, you know, I think we want to write enjoyable music for players. So they keep playing our music. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the the take-home point for me is sometimes just a 5 or 10% sacrifice in what you want from the music can give you a 90 or 95% increase in the viability of that music being played. And it's much better to have something that maybe is, like I said, a 5 or 10% sacrifice in your creative vision, but sounds 50 times better. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, yeah, um, it's important to, when you're writing, of course, write, you know, what you hear and what you want to hear and what you believe in and your compositional mind and heart, but always keep an objective ear constantly as you're writing, you know, is this something that makes sense for this instrument and how is the player going to think about this? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was just working on a cello and piano piece myself and I gave the guys the first draft um cello part i hadn't put in any slurs or anything and hadn't really thought too much about how it would work but the second draft what i did to make sure it was playable i tuned my guitar down to cello tuning oh perfect and brought it back to him after fixing some stuff and he said oh yeah a lot more idiomatic so that's a good trick i'll have to remember that actually yeah yeah Yeah, all it is for the cello is tuning down your uh, low E to C, and then and your A to a G, a, and A to G. Yeah, got your D there, and you turn the G up a whole step. Yeah, yeah, that's actually pretty convenient. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks for the tip. <laughs> oh, sure. No. I also saw that you 
were studying with Dmitry Tomasko. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, who I've had on this show, actually. Oh, wonderful. So what was this high score thing you were doing mm-hmm. in Italy? Mm-hmm. It was a really unique festival um, because I wrote a clarinet sextet for it. And um, by sextet, I mean actually six clarinets. <laughs> I always get that. I say, oh, I wrote a clarinet sextet for it. People say, oh, what were the other instruments? I say, no, six clarinets, and they kind of give me this <laughs> sideways look. Dimitri specifically, he does a lot of work with applying mathematical models to composition and not just to analyzing but actually producing compositions. One of the things I love that he demonstrated there is using probability distributions to determine the relative density of pitches that appear in a piece, you know, in C major. The important notes are, well, of course, C. G, F is our predominant. And then the rest of the notes compared to C, F, and G are quite as important. So you can make a mathematical model that says, you know, you should be more probable to hear a C and more probable to hear an F and a G for any given note. And then have the computer say, okay, choose these notes randomly, but keep in mind that it should roughly appear with these distributions. And he demonstrated live, he had um, a keyboard hooked up, and you could change the distributions just by tapping notes on the keyboard. So you could, quote-unquote, modulate just by, you know, if I wanted to go from C major to F major, I just tapped F a few times and a B flat a few times, you know, and it increased it, and all of a sudden you would hear all these Fs and B flats starting to creep in from the computer. Hmm. <laughs> it cool. was very neat, yeah. <laughs> cool. So as a math major mm-hmm. yourself... Mm-hmm. How does that factor into your music? You know, math is very much about pattern recognition. And I think the skills I learned in math apply when I'm composing, not in the act of composing, but when I'm kind of objectively evaluating my own compositions, you know, saying this doesn't work. And it helps me organize a framework for larger scale forms. Then on the flip side, I still <laughs> I still think about pitch in terms of numbers, which is partially, I'm sure, from guitar, too. But, you know, if you say tritone, I think six. I don't think diminished fifth or, you know. <laughs> hmm. Or, you know, you say major seventh, I think 11. So I still think in terms of numbers. So your other major, mm-hmm. theater, mm-hmm. and dance was your focus for yes. that, right? Mm-hmm. So... You've been composing for dance and dancing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't dance as much as I used to. I wish I had the time for it, but um, I still compose for dance. I still work for Red Dance Company in Akron, Ohio. Is there a piece you've written for them that you thought worked really well, and why? We had uh, one that was called um, DUI, Dancing Under Influence. (laughs) and um, (laughs) I think it worked really well. It was kind of this hip-hop beat i kind of took my classical music side and applied it to that so the hip-hop's actually in five four
breakdown that goes between six, eight, and seven to eight, you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> the dancers weren't too happy with me at first. <laughs> When you're dancing, what kind of music do you enjoy dancing to? I love dancing to Copeland. I love Copeland in general. (laughs) But um, actually, I really love dancing to the Mars Volta, (laughs) (laughs) which is strange, I know, but I love the Mars Volta, and I think the reason I love dancing to them is because their music is just so raucously and rawly energetic. On top of that... There's so many intricate layers in the music that you can just keep finding ways to respond to the music physically. Yeah, Yeah. that's cool. What's your approach when you're songwriting and writing lyrics? Oh, um, no, I mean, I love John Frusciante. You know, his music is the reason I'm in music in the first place. Um, I'm a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. Oh, I, they're my favorite band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I always love his guitar parts for them. Yeah, they're, they're wonderful. I mean, they're just... Um, I think what I love about his writing that I try to model in my own writing and my composing, too, is that, you know, there's no filler note. Every note is there for a reason, so there's no wasted music in any way. Yeah. I was going to ask you about your piece, Lac de Fieu, for orchestra. Mm-hmm. was an ASCAP finalist, too. Mm-hmm. Congrats. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. What I liked about that one, there's just such a variety of sounds and orchestration techniques, it seems like, you used. always worked on as a composer and I think one of my weaknesses is um, I think I'm pretty decent at crafting you know a musical moment instant to instant but a lot of times you know I get so caught up in those moments that when you put them all together it's you know you kind of well that sounds pretty but I don't understand what it's doing or where it's going you know yeah and I think that applies orchestrationally, too, you know, because that was my first orchestra piece. So it was very much me, you know, oh, I love this color and I love this combination. And oh, look, look, you know, and I kind of threw everything in the kitchen sink in there. And again, you know, it's OK, you know, it sounds pretty, but where are you going with this? <laughs> and so I think I learned that lesson that I think a lot of young composers have to learn and that I'm still learning and still working on that. It's great to have a lot of ideas, but everything in moderation. Because I tend to, um, one critique I get a lot with my music is, you know, there are so many ideas. 
and it can be hard to latch on to a through line. And so I think what I've learned is, you know, take an idea and develop and really get mileage out of it. That's same story with me too. I feel like I'm just getting to the point now where I can have a more focused idea in a piece. That's about where I am too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just five years after I graduated with my music composition degree. <laughs> but I mean, it's good to have a phase where you just spurt out as many ideas as you can too. I think so too, because I think that's the phase where you see which ideas work, you know, which ideas you want to work on. talking with my electronic music teacher because I'm a big electronic geek too and he really reminded me that there's two kinds of listening that we do you know the kind where you kind of passively sit there and let the sound wash over you and then there's the kind of active listening that we do especially as musicians where we latch onto themes you know and say what's happening here what's happening here and I think it's been important for me to remember that and to make sure that my pieces work in both ways you know, I like to listen in that passive way. Now I mean passive with a negative connotation, but just in the, you know, I'm going to sit back and enjoy the sound that is washing over me. You know, and not necessarily say, oh, well, that's the second theme, but isn't it interesting how he, you know... <laughs> but, um... <laughs> and I think that's what leads to this trouble I was saying that I get in sometimes with crafting pretty moments that individually are fine, but when you sum them together, it kind of don't lead anywhere. So I think I've focused more on objective listening. I've been thinking about that recently, too, and how I think my music listening has shifted to the more analytic way of listening that you're talking about, where it's more like a language right? than just experiencing it as, as I did before I knew theory. <laughs> so I don't know. As a psychology major, how do you think composers listen differently? I don't think we listen all that differently. I think the major difference between a trained musician listening to music and somebody without musical training, but who is serious about listening to music, is just simply a question of vocabulary, really. They might say, you know, I like a deceptive cadence, you know, for example, in a song. And that just means it went five to six instead of five to one. Somebody who doesn't know it's a deceptive cadence, they'll still hear that. They'll still respond to it, you know, and it'll still move them both intellectually and emotionally. And they'll say, you know, that's really neat there how, you know, like I thought he was going to go back to the home or the root key or whatever, you know, and but he went to kind of this sad other place instead, but it made sense. And they're saying the same exact thing you or I would say. It's just a question of labels. And that's not to say it's not important to understand that, if you want to be a musician, of course. 
But like I said, though, I don't think we as root human beings listen all that differently. Yeah. Yeah. Although sometimes I feel like I wish I could go back to before I knew music theory and everything, just because I feel like there is a little more mystery in the music. Yeah. Like I, I, Red I, Hot Chili Peppers, for example. Mm-hmm. I listen to them now, and I still like them, but it's interesting seeing how much more simple like their chord choices are than when I originally listened. And it had a little more magic to it, I feel like, for me, anyways. No, I totally, I totally know what you mean. I went through the same thing, and I still go through it, where I wish, you know, boy, I didn't recognize exactly what that was, because now I know the trick, you know? It's like watching a magician <laughs> and knowing every trick, you know? <laughs> yeah. But on the same token, you know, then I realized, well, then it makes it really special in another way that the Chili Peppers are taking you know, this, they love, the Chili Peppers love in minor going one three seven six. They love E minor, G, D, C. They love that progression. <laughs> but it's worked in so many realms for them, and they craft it so well that it gave me a new appreciation for it, that they're working with such simple materials, and yet look at what they're getting out of it. Yeah. Look at all true. these, yeah, incredibly catchy hits that we're still singing 20 years down the road. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that says a lot, too, about treatment of material because, um, you know, there's, I don't want to call it a trap because it can work fine in music to be very complex as a composer, but complexity in composition should not be just there for the sake of complexity. It should be there for another reason. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk with you about your electronic music, too, a little bit. Your piece echoed. Mm -hmm. I really liked. Well, thank you. It sounded very analog. I don't know what you were using for that, but what was your process for that one? There's really only like four or five root sounds in that piece, if I remember. I think five. That was one of my first electronic pieces, so I was still thinking about electronic music, not as an electronic musician, but as a guitarist who had a lot of stomp boxes and effects, you know. thought it was cool also how you have like a few different mini movements within that seems like just little sections with breaks in between them but how did you think about structuring that i really like the mini movement model (laughs) i'm sure you probably heard that a lot of my classical compositions too um what i did is i would find one way of treating one of the sounds like a guitarist would treat sound, you know, reverb, 
delay and distortion in. For example, if you apply a coursing effect right, you know there's a certain limit you can get to applying the course before it becomes just something totally different. And so I played with making the transition to the extreme of the application of an effect. And then um, that was essentially the end of the movement. <laughs> I wish I could tell you I was doing something more profound, but I wasn't. <laughs> hey, that's, that's cool. Well, thanks again, Alex. Thank you. And uh, uh, I feel like I was going to ask you something else. Sure. Um, but I am. Yep, I just lost my train of thought. So <laughs> <laughs> No problem. <laughs> Anyways, nice meeting you. Likewise. Have a great day. Yep, you too. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Alex Cook. For more of his music, visit alexcookmusic.com. And Cook is spelled C-O-O-K-E. The Harry Potter string quartet you heard was by Alex Figueroa. Tune in next week for the Season 2 finale episode, featuring the super talented songwriter Chris Koza. He put out four albums in one year, one album for each season. So I'm looking forward to sharing that talk. As always, feel free to get in touch with me by emailing me, charlie at composerquest.com, or by finding ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. I'll leave you now with some more of Alex Cook's perpetually moving piece, Ripple Movement 3. <laughs>